Hello and welcome again to another installment of our Lost in Science Summer Edition. This week again we have some speakers from the Laboratory, which includes scientists and science enthusiasts talking about some of their favourite science stories and scientists. Later in the show we will have crowd favourite Nick J. Johnson who will be talking about the famous sceptic James Randi and how he pretty much got his start in the sceptic business. But first of all, we have astrophysicist Tim Young, who will be talking about Niels Bohr and how he had a hard time hanging on to his Nobel Prize. that I want to talk about today starts a lot earlier than my story. Like this story starts about 13.8 billion years ago, as most stories do. So right, right back at the beginning of everything, at the beginning of time, the Big Bang itself, the universe is nothing but a giant soup of energized electrons and protons, subatomic particles that are flying around together, just starting to form the very, very basic and the very first atoms, atoms of hydrogen. And slowly over time, those atoms of hydrogen coalesced together and created the first stars, stars that burnt bright and fast and hard and exploded at the end of their very short lives to create heavier elements, helium, neon, eventually carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, the stuff that we see today. And generations and generations of stars exploded one after the other until eventually we have all the elements of the periodic table, the stuff that you will maybe remember from your chemistry classes, maybe you wish you didn't remember from your chemistry classes. But also it has all the, the fantastic chemicals that make up our bodies as well, the stuff that life is made up from. But there is one very special element on that periodic table that everyone just has this innate attraction to. And it's kind of a bit of the way down the periodic table, all the way down in the metals, and it's called gold. And gold is very, very interesting. And this story, in many ways, is a story about a few atoms of gold, a collection of these, these little forms of matter. And the reason it's about these atoms is that unlike other atoms, things like carbon, for example, that our bodies are made up of, that our lovely drinks are made up of as well, all these other atoms, they like to bond with each other, but gold doesn't do that. Gold is what we call a noble metal. It's on its own, forever alone. <laughs> so we can sometimes relate to it. But gold, gold doesn't bond very well. It's very, very good at making jewellery. It doesn't tarnish. It's one of these fantastic things. Oxidation is what causes tarnishing in your jewellery, but gold doesn't do that. And if your gold is tarnishing, I have some terrible news about your gold. <laughs> It's not gold, it's probably copper. But gold is fantastic for this reason. It doesn't form these bonds. It's just, it just exists, and it will exist on and on and on. And so this story is about a collection of atoms of gold that started their life in the nuclear furnace of a star, probably a star that existed before our own, maybe even a star that existed before that as well. And these few atoms of gold, they lived together. They lived deep, deep under the ground until eventually maybe 10 billion years after the Big Bang, they were eventually mined up or came to the surface and one day were picked up by a group of upright 
simian creatures that kind of liked them. They thought, this is really sparkly, this is nice. And these atoms of gold stuck together and they became jewelry and they became bits of um, machinery that you might see around you as well. But at one point in their lives, they had an adventure that rivaled that of anything else that had happened to them up until this point. And this is a bizarrely topical adventure because it involves Nazis, which is (laughs) in the news again, apparently. The year was 1939, and these atoms of gold had been pressed into little discs, medallions, and they were called Nobel Prizes. In particular, there were two of them, and on these medallions of gold were the names Max von Lau and James Frank. And these two Nobel Prizes belonged to these two incredible scientists who lived in Copenhagen. But 1939 was not a good year for Copenhagen, and it wasn't a good year for these two particular scientists because one of them was Jewish and one of them was an anti-Nazi activist. And it was about this time that the Nazis were coming through and rounding up anyone who might present a problem for them, someone who might not be with their ideals And they were especially rounding up all the people who followed the Jewish faith as well. And while they were doing that, they were also collecting anything of value, especially things of value that belonged to what they considered inferior people, inferior races. And it was a capital offense to own or trade or even transport these precious materials. And two gold amulets are about as precious as you can get. And the fact that they were Nobel Prizes as well were both really, really important factors. So there was another man that these two scientists worked for, and his name was Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr was, again, another scientist. He had a Nobel Prize of his own. And he had a very, very strong sense of civic duty and duty to his fellow person because he spent almost the entirety of his years during the Second World War collecting up as many vulnerable people as possible and transporting them out of places that the Nazis had begun to occupy. And he spent so much of his life and so much of his wealth doing this that he actually sold his Nobel Prize. He sold it to get enough money to get as many people as he could out of Germany, out of Sweden, and out of Copenhagen. But these two scientists that were working for him They couldn't escape, and they certainly couldn't escape with their gold because they could maybe flee as refugees. They could disguise themselves. That's one way to get around patrols. But again, it's illegal to transport any of these expensive materials. So they had to leave their Nobel Prizes behind. And they left them in the care of Niels Bohr and one of his protégés called, um, and I can never pronounce his name correctly, but it's Jörg de Havesi. And Jorg, or let's call him George, because it's much easier. (laughs) George was a fantastic chemist. And he had this incredible idea, this idea that involved science, that could save these Nobel Prizes. And he said to Niels, Niels, why don't we bury them? And Niels Bohr said, that's a terrible idea. 
the Nazis will look underground. They will look in places that we've buried them. We can't just use these simple methods. We can't hide them behind bedposts. We can't hide them under floorboards. We need something, something much better, something much more genius to make these things disappear. And so they racked their brains, and they thought, and they worked, and they thought. And then one morning, Jörg had a fantastic idea. What if we hide the metals in plain sight? Gold doesn't react to things. It's a noble metal. It doesn't react, so it doesn't dissolve. It doesn't bond, and it doesn't change its appearance. You can muddy it up, but it will still be gold underneath. There is only one substance known to humankind that can dissolve gold, and it's something called aquaregia, quite literally Latin for water of the kings. This stuff is pretty toxic. It's three parts hydrogen chloride and one part nitric acid. And it is the only substance known that can dissolve gold. But it doesn't dissolve it fast. In fact, this process can sometimes take days or even weeks, depending on how much gold you have and how good your molecular chemistry is. And they didn't have days or weeks. In fact, they had a matter of hours because that morning when they discovered that Acroregia could be their solution, the SS had started combing the street of their lab. They had a matter of hours to get this gold and to dissolve it down into its constituent components. And so that's what they did. They just worked and worked and worked. Eventually, Niels had to leave as well because he was kind of known at this point as someone who was opposing the Nazi regime and someone who was helping the Jewish people flee. So he also fled as a refugee, and he didn't come back to his lab for over 10 years. But Jörg worked tirelessly, subdividing the gold, trying to get as much surface area as possible to get as much of the acaregia in there, and after about eight hours, moments before the door was kicked down, he had a solution that looked very, very similar to this. This muddy brown awfulness. And they were in two flasks, one named Max von Lau and one named James Frank. Didn't taste that good. These two flasks sat on the shelf as the Nazis came in and literally trashed every part of the lab. All of the expensive glassware, all of the lab equipment that had been slowly stockpiled for quite literally hundreds of years. Some of this chemistry equipment was hundreds of years old and they smashed it all. But these two muddy brown flasks of grossness just sat on a shelf, slowly collecting dust and no one paid it a second thought. Ten years later, the war is finally over, and people are starting to return to Copenhagen. And Jörg took these two flasks, and he personally ferried them up to Switzerland, to the Nobel Council. And the scientists at the Nobel Council took these two flasks and distilled back out of them those exact same molecules of gold, the exact same atoms that formed those metals to begin with, and reforged them back into their... Nobel Prizes. The exact same atoms that existed in those metals right from the dawn of time to exist as a metal, to be dissolved into this muck and to become back to a metal again is an incredible scientific experiment. It's an incredible scientific endeavor, but also it was a symbol of stubbornness. 
to fight against the system and to make sure that we had kept the stories of these people, the stories of them who, and they won their Nobel Prizes for very important things. Uh, Max von Lau got his Nobel Prize for uh, what we call now X-ray diffraction, the process to find out what materials are made of through using X-rays. Not quite the same X-rays that you get at a hospital, but very, very similar. And James Frank uh, worked with a man called Gustav Hertz to essentially make the systems of modern electrical science. So almost everything that runs on electricity now you owe to those two. And Hertz is, of course, the system uh, or the, the metric that we use to measure the frequency of sound. So another huge name in science. But while they got their medals back and everything was fantastic, Niels Bohr had sold his and he died never knowing what had happened to it. The auction was a silent auction. It was an anonymous bidder and no one knew who it was. And four years after Niels Bohr's death, someone came to the museum in Stockholm and once again, anonymously gave the medal back. Not asking for a cent for it, just deposit it back to live alongside the other two, which are all there now. Jörg de Hevesy was very lucky because he didn't have a Nobel Prize until 1943. He got his Nobel Prize for essentially discovering that radioactive elements could be injected into a body as a tracer, a method that we now use to find cancers and other malignant bodies within the human body, or animal bodies as well, if you have a lot of money for a very expensive vet. So all four of these men did something amazing for science, but also something amazing for the legacy of the science and for the people who have helped them get to where they are as well. And that, I think, is one of the most incredible stories to me because it's a story about perseverance, and it's a story that has a happy ending, which is nice. And it also reminds you that some things in life are maybe a little bit more permanent than you might have thought. All that gold that you might have on your jewelry, that was born in a star just as all the atoms were that you're made of right now. But that gold will also be there long after your death, long after the death of most of the people that we know and love and their children and their children and their children. Those atoms will exist forever. And it's amazing to wonder what journey and what adventures might those atoms have long after we're all gone. So, thank you very much for listening. You are listening to Lost in Science Summer Series. That was astrophysicist Tim Young telling the epic 13 billion year story of Niels Bohr's Nobel Prize medal. Coming up next, we have Nick J. Johnson, who is talking about James Randi, world-famous skeptic, and how he got his start in the skeptic game. I started this and I had a very clear idea of who the villain was and uh, in finishing my research I realised I'm not sure if there is a villain uh, and if there is one I'm not 100% sure who it is. Um, so if there is booing involved at the end it may, be, it may go on for some time and will mostly be directed at me. So in the mid-1970s, there was a, a brief uh, level of excitement directed at telekinesis. Suddenly, large portions of the population, particularly in America, became obsessed with the idea of moving objects or bending metal with the power of their mind. The world was gripped, force-gripped, with telekinesis fever. 
You had movies like Carrie, The Fury, Project X, and The, Musha, the Medusa Touch were in cinemas showing exploding heads and moody teenagers moving cars by staring at them. The KGB were experimenting with Nina Kilogina, a Russian housewife who could supposedly stop hearts with the power of her mind. Footage had been leaked uh, in, into America showing her moving matchboxes and coins around a tabletop. And the CIA, not to be outdone, were conducting the Stargate Project and Project MK Ultra, where they pushed the limits of the human mind while also inspiring the first season of Stranger Things. And of course, in the centre of all of that was Yuri Geller, a man who claimed that he could bend spoons stop watches, and even read what was written on pieces of paper locked in other rooms. I thought that Yuri Geller would make a, a great villain for tonight, but there's other people doing far more interesting work. Because Yuri Geller was never really tested. There were always tests. He'd talk about secret tests, but the results were always inconclusive. And for a showman like Yuri Geller, that's just what he wanted. He didn't care if people believed in him or not. He just wanted people talking about him. So there was basically no evidence that these things existed, but there was also no evidence that it didn't exist. Until along came James McDonnell. James McDonnell was a billionaire, aviator, engineer, and businessman. He made his fortune as a, a principal supplier of fighter jets for uh, the, the US Air Force during the 40s and 50s, and then he moved into aerospace engineering. He uh, and ended up um, uh, being responsible for Skylab, America's first and only space station. Um, in his later years, in his 70s, he became obsessed with telekinesis and proving that it existed. So essentially, you need to imagine this guy is essentially Elon Musk if he decided he wanted to prove that Professor X was a real person instead of what Elon Musk really wants to do, which is, I think, to prove that the Matrix is real, I think is where he is at the moment. So he took half a million dollars to Washington University, his local university, and said, I will give you this money if you can prove that telekinesis is real. And uh, one scientist, a man by the name of Peter Phillips, put up his hand and said, look, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll head up this, this research that you're interested in doing. And that was where they got the McDonald Laboratory for Psychical Research, which is a very difficult word to read, and I guarantee at least one point this evening I'm going to say the word physical. So they started the planning and obviously lots of people put up their hand and said, no, I have these real abilities. I should be the one that you test. I, I'm the one you should be looking at. I'm the real deal. There were 300 in all. But there were two young men, Steve Shaw and Mike Edwards, who came from two different states, um, but both managed to demonstrate very similar abilities. They were, didn't fit your kind of traditional idea of what a psychic or or one of these kind of telekinetic people can, would be. They were actually both in their late teens when the, the study started. Um, they were just ordinary guys from middle America, brash, a little bit overconfident, but they could demonstrate extraordinary abilities. Um, from the initial study, um, uh, Phillips has said, two apparently powerful subjects, M.E. and S.S., had presented themselves to the McDonald Laboratory for Physics... <laughs> Didn't even get through one. Psychical research. Our observations indicate that they may possess other PK abilities 
as well. Now, around this time, a man showed up, a magician showed up, James Randi. Uh, for those who don't know, James Randi is a magician and skeptic who is known for essentially ruining anyone's belief in the paranormal. If you believe in psychics, if you believe in mediums, if you believe in telekinesis, he is there to shut down your beliefs. He is a professional party pooper um, and has dedicated his entire life to uh, convincing people that these sort of paranormal claims should be studied uh, skeptically and rationally. And he said, if you are going to do a study like this, you need a magician. Now, the scientist said, we don't need a magician. <laughs> because no scientific experiment has ever needed a magician. In fact, no one has ever needed a magician. I am a magician. No one needs me. Yeah? Like, no one, nothing, I've never done a gig where people have said, thank God you were here. <laughs> Things really would have gone to hell without the guy doing magic. So they sent him away and continued the studies without him. And straight away, they got fantastic results from, from, both, from both Mike and Steve. I'll read from, from some of their notes. They said, um, in uh, PRP, that's, that's Peter Phillips' first session with ME, that's, that's Mike Edwards, he and three other people each in turn placed several straight keys in their closed fist and asked Emmy to influence them. Emmy was never allowed contact with the keys and in each instance when the hand was open, one of the keys was discovered bent. They went on to do things like affecting photographic film to the extent that it produced um, streaks and blotches of light just by concentrating on the film. Um, and they even managed to stop digital watches from working just by staring at them, never touching them, just staring at them. So after a year of tests, um, they were preparing um, for a presentation at a, at a major parapsychological meeting, which I realise was once a thing, um, and perhaps still is. And um, when who should show up but James Randi um, requesting could he see the footage from all of these tests? And they said, OK, fine, you can take it. Anyway, he took this footage to a... Um, uh, to his local magic club. And the magicians all got together and, and looked at the footage and came up with a whole bunch of suggestions on how to make the study uh, stricter, how to make it more rigorous, um, how to basically make it better. And they took it back to the scientists who, to their credit, said, OK, you make some good points, let's try it your way. And as soon as they did that, they suddenly found that Mike and Steve could no longer perform as they previously had. Um, the, suddenly, with these tighter controls in place, Mike and Steve just lost their mojo. The keys were unbent, the spoons stayed the way they were, the digital watches kept on moving. So after this, most of the, uh, the people involved in the study said... Uh, the, tr the official was meagre results. So they didn't say no results, just meagre results, we're going to move on. A few people continued on with the study, excited. They toured around with Mike and Steve, showing them off at different universities. And there were glowing reports were being published in journals and magazines. But then, 18 months later, James Randi decided to hold a press conference at Discover magazine, um, to, uh, essentially to announce that he had found the first true psychics. And the first true psychics were... Mike and Steve, the two young men sort of humbly came up. It had been four years since the study had started and uh, Randy started chatting to them and, and asked them just sort of offhandedly, oh, by the way, how do you actually do it? And Mike stepped up to the microphone and said, well, to be quite honest, we cheat. 
We've spent the last four years doing magic tricks for scientists and they never figured it out. <laughs> Not only that, the reason why they spent four years doing magic tricks for scientists was because James Randi asked them to. James Randi sent Mike and Steve to the university and said, just go f*** with them. I'm paraphrasing. And the one rule was, if they say, are you cheating? Are you faking this? Then you have to admit that you are and that I sent you. And they never asked that question. And so they continued for four years. Now, this was insane. The sort of things they were doing were, so they were bending spoons. And basically, one of the things that James Randi said was, don't have anything, don't give them anything but the spoon. But they had spoons and all sorts of stuff everywhere, and they were all labelled so they could tell what was what. And what would happen was, while Steve was staring at a key over here, Mike would take the labels on the spoons and swap them. So they'd measure the spoon and go, this is almost like a different spoon. (laughs) The digital watches stopped working because... um, Steve would sneak them out of the sorry Mike would sneak them out of the laboratory and put them in the microwave. <laughs> and the blurry streaks that kept appearing in the photographs were because Mike kept spitting on the camera lens. <laughs> so the center was immediately shut down. The reputations of everyone involved took a massive beating and Randy obviously to this day continues to speak out against suspect claims of the paranormal and has uh, you know, caused trouble for all sorts of people. Steve Shaw now goes by the name of Banachek um, and as well as being a performing magician, um, has invented magic tricks for Penn and Teller, David Blaine, Lance Burton and Chris Angel. Um, uh, James McDonald, sadly, he died before this information came out. He died um, in uh, 1980, so three years before the study was actually um, revealed to be a hoax. And so he never got to find out um, what the results were, which, considering his deeply held beliefs, was probably for the best. So I've actually told this story for many years. I go into high schools and talk about critical thinking, and so I'll talk about this study. And I always use it as an example of confirmation bias, of how people believe things, and if you don't, you know, if you go in with your conclusion already in mind, you're going to be scammed. But in preparing for tonight, to me, James McDonough was always the villain, this guy trying to by results. I've got $500,000 if you can prove me right. You know, that horrible idea that you can get the results you want by throwing enough money at it. But looking at some of the correspondences and looking at the reactions of the scientific community and what actually showed up in the media at the time, I'm starting to think that maybe James Randi is the villain. I mean, if his desire was to find the truth, why did he need to lie? And, and it, what scientists releases their results by having a big press conference that is essentially a giant middle finger to people that you disagree with? It makes it harder for people to fund this type of ridiculous research, um, to discredit the many frauds, um, or to study why people believe this sort of thing. There was no paper ever published as a result of the hoax, no theory was ever discovered, no scientist ever reached a conclusion that we can argue about. Really, it just kind of felt like he was pushing an agenda. It wasn't that he even wanted to kill the study. He wanted to salt the earth so nothing more could grow. It wasn't really about finding the truth. It was about stopping people from doing dumb shit. But to me, I always feel like that's what science is about, doing dumb shit. So, uh, and in fact, obviously, a lot of um, the psychological um, uh, organizations at the time were saying, 
that um, James Randi should really be brought before an ethics committee until it was pointed out he was not a psychologist or a scientist. <laughs> you can't really bring him in front of an ethics committee. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.